Father God, we are grateful for another evening together, another opportunity to be immersed in your word. The reason why you gave us the word immersed for this group is because part of what you have in mind for this community is so that we can be people who are so immersed in your word that we can then go forth into the world to shine as light. And we're asking that that would be, tonight's meeting would be a step towards realizing that even more and more as we journey on together, continue to do life together via this platform and in every other way that you bring us together. To you be all the glory and praise. We ask that your wisdom will be present to speak to us and to help us to understand the things that you want us to understand. This shall not be just some academic exercise. It shall be helpful um, and hope inspiring. To you be all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Um, just a question for us to get started and to get us into the flow in a manner of speaking. And I would appreciate all the interactions and engagements that we can get. And that question would be, can you remember the story behind your first Bible? The first Bible that you had that you could call your own Bible. How did that come about? Who gave it to you? Under what circumstance, under what condition did you receive it? Anybody wants to share about that? I could go first, um, or no, I would come afterwards, except nobody's willing to build the cat. Who wants to go first? The first Bible that you had that you called your own Bible. What's, what's the story behind that? Okay, Esther, you can go on, and then we'll come to Sister Inka. Just unmute yourself and go for it. Uh Okay, so um, my first Bible, <laughs> even if it's very funny, like the first Bible I have that I could call my own was when um, I entered um, into uni. You know, um, hundred level, we had uh, many fellowships that we could go to and collect fresh stuff and to eat and all of those things. So I remember that, I remember um, a, a, a church I think Rema Church or something, but it was outside the school environment. And they told us that they were going to like take us to the church and all of that. So when they were giving us, um, you know, the yam and the spaghetti, all of us were even happy. That, oh, this is amazing. And they gave us a Bible. So um, they gave me the um, New Living Translation. I just collected it like, well, it's just normal. And uh, to God be the glory, I really love the Bible. Like, every time I see the Bible, it's first that like this, I see my leg is breaking so that's actually my first that's old nice. bible hmm. that's that's a lovely story thank you so much for sharing sister inka let's hear your story yeah um <clears throat> my first bible hmm. actually oh, okay i thought i turned on my video okay yeah, all right so well, <clears throat> my first Bible, which um, funny enough, I'm still using is, is what I still take to church, was a King James or is a King James Bible, the old King James Bible. Oh, wow. It looks like I'm using the same background like Pastor Cola. What a coincidence. <laughs> okay. So, um, and it's funny because 
before this Bible and after this Bible, I've had several other Bibles, but this one stands out because it's the first Bible I will buy with my money. Mm. And it's not, a, it wasn't a gift. It wasn't like they, they bought it for me. It wasn't like the, my book of Bible story that parents always give children then or anything like that. It's actually from my, from the money I worked for. So um, after secondary school, you know, that period where you are still waiting for jam, jam is jamming you, you are jamming jam and all those things. And, you know, I just got like a small side hustle, was working somewhere mm. and I got that money. So I bought it was 500 Naira. Um, I still remember that. That's why it stands out. I remember how much I bought it. It was old King James Bible. Yeah. It's like a rectangle shape. The ones with a little bit of a print. Now it's torn. I'm using tape to tape it together. Hold it. Hold the body and soul together because I really cherish it. I've marked markings inside of it, mm. you know, and made notations. And if sometimes if I want to remember some part of scripture and I'm still trying, I know where I can open. I'll be like, I know it's in the upper part or in the lower part of it or I something like that. So it stands out because, you know, it was when I was waiting to go into the university, I was working. I, it was one of the things I gifted myself. I bought it with my money. And I am still using it to today, and I and I and I hope it will still hold <laughs> together for me to still keep using it. So it's it's it's, it's several years old. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's that's a beautiful story as well. Um, I can see some other ants. Um, Damilare, you see if you can go for it. Esther, your hand is up. I don't know whether that's from before or okay, you've taken it down. Damilari, over to you. Just unmute. Okay, good evening, everyone. Good evening. Yes, um, my first Bible. Well, I wouldn't say um a categorically no, I didn't buy it for myself. Mm -hmm. It was like a gift. Well, what's what's what made that Bible so memorable that makes me still have I don't have any, I don't have it any longer. Okay. Got it from um, a TAC pastor, like my uncle, kind of. So it was like it was like a Bible, a Bible in a Bible. It was like a commentary Bible <laughs> in the sense that you are so you are so written, you are so like every page I'm turning, I'm seeing, I'm seeing highlights and comments, highlights and comments, and no in fact. You know, that was just like some incantation, <laughs> like literally in wow. um, around Isaiah or Psalms. Hmm. So it was so the the Bible. It's all it's all that Bible makes me look forward to studying and reading the Bible. So, but yeah, the interesting part of it was that I I misplaced it or somehow it just it just went missing. Hmm. But that 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 is one Bible that um I would never forget and. It was, it was really a joy using it. It was good, black good. in color. It had um, it had a pinkish um, um, sideline. Um, this thing. It had, yes. a, it had a Bible cover. Oh, wow. <laughs> so an interesting one. That's you. interesting. Well done. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Sister Christy. Yeah, good evening. Good evening, sir. 
Yeah, my first slide is that I I think the one I they gave you my name is the one I didn't go for me gave my name RSD. Uh, I used it to after my secondary school. <laughs> but the next one, I have not bought by this by myself, so I haven't. <laughs> I think that is by me. Anytime I need it. Well, the one I still cherish was the gift that was given to me, a Bible gift of NLC. Bible gift over five years ago. And I've never had that of my own. Buying is my own money because I have a lot. So, <laughs> that's interesting nice thanks for sharing that as well um i was going to share mine as well nothing too spectacular except that of mine was a gift it was my 10th year birthday gift from my eldest brother um, who is now in scotland um i remembered for whatever reason i think he kept asking prior to the birthday that what do i want or even it might have even been after the birthday or something that what do i want for my birthday gift and for whatever reason i don't know where that came from i said i wanted my own bible um it's not like i didn't have bible that I was using there were just so many bibles in the house that you just pick whichever one when you're going to church but i wanted one i could call mine and so he bought it was a green kjv Bible gift edition, red letter edition for the words of Christ with a few concordance and dictionary materials at the back. And I used that Bible till I got to uni. Um, because by the time I got to uni and actually got serious with Christianity, Genesis was gone. Revelation has disappeared. I think Jude was also gone. Um, and that's not because I've been reading it so much. It's just because I've been careless with it. <laughs> that's all. Um, but yes, it's a Bible that I still very much remember and have fond memories of, especially in my secondary school days. While I didn't know what I was doing, I was like the class rep or class captain, as we call it, or class governor for the most part of my secondary school years. And I remember days that I would stand in front of the class, not in my capacity as a Christian or a follower of Christ, but in my capacity as the class captain. If something has gone wrong, specifically I remember one day that someone stole someone's money and I stood in front of the class reading from John chapter eight and trying to admonish the class that whoever has done this can come out clean and come and tell me you're the one that stole the money. Of course, I can't remember if anybody did come, but I have that fond memory of standing in front of the class and actually talking to them from the Bible, even if I didn't have a clue <laughs> what exactly I was doing. But yeah, that's that was my first Bible and a Bible I really, really loved. We had a part to play my salvation story, but that would be a story for another day. Why did I start from there? Um, I just wanted us to, on the one hand, relieve the genesis of our relationship with scripture. I'm going to share the screen again now. Um, to relieve our, our relationship with the Bible individually, um, whatever that might have looked like. And also then probe further to that question of how did that come about? Has the Bible always been like that? I mean, just on my right side, there I have like four Bibles piled up upon one another. This is one of my oldest ones. It's a dad's Bible that I've got since, I think, when, during my service here. But has the Bible always been like this? Has, has it always, you know, what has it always looked like? How did it come about to the point where 
now at the click of a of an app on my phone, I can have access to as many English translations as I want, and perhaps even up to like three or four Yoruba translations, which is my own mother tongue, at least as of the last time I checked on the YouVersion Bible app. What's the journey from when God inspired the people that contributed to write down the things that we now find in the Bible to the point where it has now become this portable um, vessel or instrument, or you could even almost just say book, only book, albeit, um, but it's still a book um, that we now engage with today. That's part of what we want to consider. And part of what batted this was from our last meeting. This is literally an offshoot of our last meeting. Some of you will remember one of the questions that came up. It was an Ask Anything night session. And one of the questions that came up um, brought this issue about you know seeming contradictions in the Bible and things like that. And part of what I thought could begin to help put in perspective our relationship with the scripture would be, let's actually journey through the history of what's led to us having this, hopefully so that that can then spark a fresh um, perspective of how we view it and not take it for granted. I believe that when the story behind something is not known, we risk misvaluing it. Um, and this is not only true about the Bible, it's true about anything or anyone. When you don't know someone's story, you can take for granted whatever it is that they are doing or your perception about them and things like that. And we all do this. We all have prejudices. Prejudice comes from prejudging someone. So as you're seeing them and interacting with them within the first five minutes, you have a prejudged opinion about someone's life. But the truth is you can't tell in five minutes the story that has brought that person to that point. If only you know the story, perhaps you'll be more objective in how you value them, in how you estimate them, in the file that you put them in your mental shelves and things like that. So those, those are the two major <coughs> drives for tonight's conversation. Um, and of course, again, the more you study the Bible, if you've ever tried getting to be a little more intentional with doing that on a personal note, as opposed to just, you know, whatever happens in fellowship days or in church gathering days or things like that. You might have had some of these kind of questions. Isn't the Bible full of contradictions and errors? That was part of what we saw in, last, in our last meeting. Uh, by the time you begin to hear people talk about the fact that the Bible has been copied and translated so many times, you want to start asking, so what's, what's, makes me think I can trust the Bible in that sense. Uh, as this process, has it not led to multiple errors in that sense? Um, didn't the church arbitrarily decide which books should be included and which books should be rejected? Again, we've broached on this subject in one of our previous Immers Youth meetings where we spoke about the um, apocryphal books or deuterocanonical deutero books or whatever. I mean, there are so many words that are used for them. Basically, some of the books of the Bible that you find in quote and unquote Catholic Bibles, but you won't find in Protestant Bibles. And you might have wondered, what's that about? Um, so many people have different interpretations of the Bible. What's to make you think that your own interpretation is the correct one? By the way, I'm not saying we're going to answer all these questions today. I'm just pointing out the different things that we could wrestle with when it comes to this all-important subject. How can you place your faith in a book that condones genocide and slavery? Have you thought about that? 
how should you feel about reading a passage in any of the Torah, especially Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you're hearing God give standard instructions to the Israelites to wipe out certain nations when they get into the promised land and make sure you don't spare mothers, you don't spare their children, you don't spare anything, literally wipe them all out. How should you process that vis-a-vis -vis the context in which we live today? Uh, what do you think about Paul writing his epistles and talking, addressing slaves as though implicit, implicitly um, condoning slavery? Of course, it's not until the 19th century that slavery will be abolished um, in a way that it becomes a crime to continue to keep slaves um, in that sense. How do you reconcile that reality in the scripture with our, with our reality today? Um, and different other things. I mean, doesn't the Bible make a number of claims that are scientifically inaccurate? The history, the story in the Bible, if you put it in terms of the history of the human race, you can probably go as far back as say 6,000 BC. But now we hear of dinosaurs that lived millions of years ago. And my first son is crazy. Our first son is crazy about dinosaurs. And you are wondering, how does that fit in into the story of creation in Genesis chapter one? What are we supposed to make of? things like that. So there are basically lots and lots and lots of questions that the Bible can make us begin to ask, and rightly so. In fact, if anything, I was jokingly telling my wife um, earlier today that the more I try to piece out, put down my thoughts and piece together the resources for this evening's meeting, the more I'm thinking, maybe we should just spend one full year, every immersed meeting, say next year, just talking about the Bible and just, you know, grounding ourselves in ways that makes us at least um, sort of apologetically sound. And what I mean by that is it makes you able to defend your faith, the reason why you believe what you believe, the reason why you think the Bible is what, whatever value we place on it and things like that. I'm not saying we're going to do that. If God says so, maybe that would be the focus for next year. Or maybe that will be the focus for the rest of this year or something, I don't know. But that's a story for another day. So what I want to do in terms of trying to help us or take us through this um, history of the Bible, and this can never be exhaustive. There are just so many details that we can't possibly cover. That's one. Second disclaimer, I'm not a historian. Um, yes, I've studied a, a bit of this in an academic sense. Um, with my first master's in biblical and pastoral theology, second master's in African Christianity, there's a bit of grounding to stand on. But even at that, I'm not a qualified historian. And so it's not like I've read all there is to read as far as the history of the Bible is concerned. So there is also that limitation. Um, but all that said, I still believe that there is enough um, resources that we can look back to, to give us traction for what we want to discuss. Last thing I would say before we get into it is feel free to stop me at any time, raise up your hand or just unmute yourself and say, I have a question and let's discuss so that this will not just be some one man um, rambling <laughs> um, kind of thing. The Lord help us in Jesus name. So the outline is the way to think through this is in first four phases or four stages, the Old Testament, 
And then coming into the New Testament era, we want to look at that before Tyndale and the Reformation. And don't worry, you'll hear more about who Tyndale was. And then, and why that is significant to categorize our history of the Bible with reference to someone like that. And then from the time of Tyndale and the Reformation to the time of, uh, from the time of Tyndale specifically to the time of the King James Version, you could almost still say that the King James Version is coming within the eat of the Reformation era. And then after that, till now, so after the KJV came, KJV was published in 1611. And that launched, as it were, a new era of that popularized scripture, you could say, up until today. Uh, so we want to quickly cover those four categories. Um, I might be using words that in my own blind spot, I would imagine that people should know this. People should understand that if I'm doing that uh, without explaining what I'm saying, please stop me in my tracks and let me clarify. The point is to hopefully help us um, to, and for me to learn as well from our interactions um, about all of these subjects before us. Now let's get into it. Okay, the Old Testament. Um, of course, again, like I've mentioned, the Old Testament is like covering almost a 4,000 year story in a manner of speaking, um, and with lots of contributors. Many of the books in the Old Testament, we are not exactly sure who wrote them, but the act of writing down things, writing down not just anything, but things by God's inspiration and instruction, at least the first reference to that that we'd see would be in the book of Exodus 17. This was the story of when um, the Israelites were fighting, I think the Amalekites, um, in these their wanderings on the way to the promised land. And you would remember the fight from the perspective of this detail about Moses lifting up his hand. And whenever his hand is up, they are winning. Whenever his hand is down, they are losing. And Joshua and Aaron had to support his hands. Um, to ensure that they eventually won. Uh, after that incident, or in that same context, God then instructed Moses, he says in Exodus 17, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, knowing that Joshua would eventually be the one to finish the job in a manner of speaking or to pass on the baton to recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Hamalek from under heaven. Um, of course, this is just a tiny piece of detail, but it's instructive in many ways. Um, first, in the sense that we see specific instruction for God to actually instruct Moses, write this thing down. And not only write it just for the sake of writing, write it so that someone else, namely Joshua, can listen to it. So there is already a reference to the fact that God intends to speak. He intends to have some of what he's saying documented, but not just for the sake of documenting it, but so that what is documented can be transmitted across generations for his own purpose, for God's sole purpose, as it were. And of course, again, then we come to Exodus 23 chapters down all these chapters and verses are things that would not be introduced until very many, many hundreds of years later. Um, but now we speak about the Bible in chapters and verses as if it has always been like that. That's, that wasn't the case. But in any case, three chapters down, we get to Exodus 20, where God gave the Ten Commandments. And 
For all we know, they were inscribed by the finger of God upon tablets of stone, which Moses would eventually break um, because of his anger when he descended the mountain and things like that, before he would chisel those commandments on yet another set of tablets of stones and things like that. And then in Exodus 34, again, Moses is commanded to write down all the words. He says, for in accordance with these words, God speaking, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So again, we see that instruction to write, to write and to write. And then by the time you get to Numbers um, 33 verse 2, it says, at the Lord's command, Moses recorded the stages in their journey. And then he goes on to give an account or a recount of those journeys. One of the interesting things that came out to me this year that I intentionally chose to study the Bible chronologically from 1st of January, I have seen that again and again and again, there is always a recap, a recap. In fact, the whole book of Deuteronomy is almost like a giant long sermon from Moses, recounting all the story up until that point um, and retelling all the instructions and all the laws that God has given so that the Israelites can have this to journey with going into the promised land. Um, and so God is intentional about, I don't want you to forget what I've said before. I want you to always remember that because you need it for where you're going to. So that's kind of clear from the scheme of things, the way God operates. Um, and again, in Deuteronomy 17, 18 to 19, I'll read that out loud to see yet another interesting detail about how this old writing down the law of God, the words of God has played out, especially when it comes to leadership. It says, when a king takes the throne of his kingdom in Israel, that is, he is to write for himself on a scroll, a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. In other words, you could say taken from the original manuscripts that Moses wrote, a king is expected to write for himself his own personal copy of what God's law is. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. Again, we are saying that, if you will, intention of God for us not only to have his word, in this case, specific reference to kings, for the kings to have his word so that they could treasure it in their hearts and lead God's people thereby. Um, that's also pretty much clear. And if you go on and on like that throughout the story of the people of Israel, um, from after when Moses died and the first five books, which, is, which are called collectively the Torah or the Pentateuch, when that phase passed on, then we moved on to the history of their journeys um, when Moses, um, Joshua took over as it were. So that ushers out into, into the book of Joshua and then the period of Judges after Joshua also had left the scene without any concrete um, successor, so to speak, after him. And Bible says that the people started, you know, living and doing things just the way they deem fit to themselves. That's how the book of Judges starts and ends. In those days, there were no kings and everyone did what is right in his own highs. And so that ushers us into yet another chronicle of, you know, just history upon history upon history of what kept happening up until the point where they felt they needed a king and they got king first with King Saul and eventually with King David, the great psalmist. And we saw very many of the psalms that were specifically ascribed to David. Um, 
some of them to at least a, one or two to Solomon. And there are so, some other people that were specifically mentioned as authors of some of the Psalms, even one of them was ascribed to Moses. So we, we could see that this Psalm is already like a, a compilation of songs of some sort. When that compilation was put together, how that came to be, and there is exactly 150, we don't have all of the full details about how that happened. But we know that over the years, one thing is clear. The, the culture of the people of Israel, remember that the Israelites are the chosen nation. They are the ones that God wanted to use more or less as a template for the whole world. It's through them that the savior was gonna come through that lineage, through that nation, so to speak. So that from salvation is of the Jews, Paul will say, so that from there, it then extends to the rest of us or to the rest um, of the world. And so one thing that is common about this nation, this God-found nation, if you will, is that they became a people of the book. They became a people that their life is somewhat centered around the law of God, which are the words of God. We see this especially in Nehemiah chapter 8. This is after they've gone into slavery or captivity, as you could put it, and they are back the temple is being rebuilt, the wall is being rebuilt, and now there's the need to reconstitute the community around the formula or the template that God has given them. And Nehemiah, um, Ezra specifically, Ezra and Nehemiah, those two books should go hand in hand if you're reading scriptures. Uh, so Ezra became the scribe that, you know, brings this word of God back to the center of the community. Um, of the people of Israel. And that would carry on as much as we know into the New Testament era, such that when Jesus came on the scene in the New Testament, it is clear on the one hand that there are still some Jewish people living in that context. Of course, by this time, there is no longer a nation of Israel um, in the same way we had it in the Old Testament. There had been like 400 years of silence after the period of Ezra, Nehemiah, and all of that till the time that we jump into the New Testament and see um, the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John detailing the story of the life of Jesus. But within those many years of history, part of the things that have happened is colonialism. The Roman Empire, if you will, are taking over a lot of kingdoms, including part of what would have been the Jewish lands in those days. That's why we say they were living in the Greco-Roman world. So the, the first century church, the days of Jesus, the days of Apostle Paul and all the other apostles going around planting churches, all of that happened in the first century AD. Of course, again, you would know that history is BC and AD, BC literally before Christ, AD in the year of our Lord. And so it's more or less, even though I don't know why there is still a slight difference. Jesus was not born on one AD or zero BC or whatever. Um, I think it's either two or three years before the zero in that sense. Um, I don't know why there is that disparity. I can't recall fully where, why that is the case. But in any case, the, the, the general idea is that AD begins when Jesus has come on the scene. BC is before Christ came on the scene, largely. That's the, that's the gist. Um, so that's pretty much the story of the Old Testament. By this time, at the end of the Old Testament coming into the new, it's clear that there is already what they call scripture. You would constantly see 
Um, even the apostles referring to scripture um, again and again. For instance, 1 Corinthians 15, within verse three and like verse five, Paul used according to the scripture almost like three, four times. And whenever you are saying according to the scripture in the New Testament, the scripture they are referring to is basically the Old Testament. Because by this time, that is popularly known and accepted widely by Jewish people. Um, so that's, that's that. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture are written, da, 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 da. What Paul had in mind in that verse, even though we apply it to all of the Bible, but what he was specifically referring to there is the Old Testament, because that was all the scripture that they had as of that time. Uh, but now the apostles were beginning to also write epistles and letters, which many of the Christians living in that era knew that there was a knowing that these are not just letters that are to be read and discarded for some reason, because they have always been the people of the book, the Jewish people, that culture continued in the sense that now they are treasuring these new instructions that are being given to them by the apostles and things like that. And so different books were also beginning to spring up and things like that. Now, the history of the Bible before Tyndale and the Reformation, so that's basically saying from the days of Jesus, till the time of the Reformation, uh, just to, to help us to make sense of why we are using this kind of categorization, I should quickly mention ahead that there is a period in the history of the church and the history of Christianity where there was, um, if you will, a revolution of some sort. Many of you would have heard the name Martin Luther, and I'm not talking of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, that fought against racism in the United States. That's just within the last 100 years-ish. But I'm talking of Martin Luther that lived in the 16th century. Um, specifically in 1517, he sparked up a revolution. He was a monk in the Catholic church. And you could almost say at this period in time in history, everyone is a Catholic in a sense. Um, few centuries before then, there had been what was called uh, the great split between the churches of the East and the West, in which the Catholic Church majorly is the Church of the West, and then the Church of the East would, would be the Orthodox um, Church in the East, and they are still in place still today. Um, but as of that period, the Catholic Church is everyone's church. In fact, one of the major declarations of the Christian faith is that the church is holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Catholic there, not necessarily meaning a denomination. The word Catholic itself simply means universal. But Martin Luther, who is part of the Catholic Church as a monk in the church, suddenly felt he came into some new light reading the scripture um, and decided, I mean, comparing what he was reading with what he was observing, he felt like there has been a whole lot of drifting away from what the Bible really says. And so he would go on to do a lot of arguing and debating, and he was, of course, persecuted and all sorts of things. He also had many excesses. Um, so there is no way we can tell his story in, in a perfect um, biographical sense. He had his excesses, he had his mistakes, um, but he was responsible in a manner of speaking for a, re a return, a revolution within church as it was in those days. And one of the central, central issues of that reformation, which is why they call it the reformation era, is that he was calling everybody back to the Bible. 
And of course, to call people back to the Bible, they needed to be able to access that Bible. As of this period in history, people don't have access. Most people don't have access to the Bible. And you will see why that is the case when we join in. So I'm just giving the two, um, the framework that we are working with so that you can see why we're talking about Tyndale and the Reformation as though that's uh, a pillar in the history of the Bible as it came to us today. Let me pause and take questions. I think I've, I've said so much over some people's heads perhaps. Um, and just be sure that we are following. Are we still tracking? Are we still following? Is there something I've said that needs to be further unpacked um, so that we can be on the same page? Anyone? And if you are following, feel free to just give a thumbs up or something so I just know that I want some sort of feedback um, before moving on. Stanley, there you are smiling. <laughs> Thanks, Dylan. Thanks, Damilari. <laughs> And thanks, Anu. Okay. All right. I think, I think I can move on to this next phase. So we've covered the Old Testament bit. Now, the history of the Bible before Tyndale and the Reformation. Again, going back to the days of Jesus, let me also point out one small detail that we may take for granted because we are all about these days now that, you know, information is everywhere. We know that the, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, which was the language of the people at the time. And we know that the New Testament was written in what language, anybody? In Greek, I can hear you, Sister Ife, even if you're not muted. <laughs> even if you're not muted. was written in Greek. Um, but if I then ask the question, what language did Jesus speak when Jesus was here? Does anybody want to answer that? What language, what language, what language did Jesus speak? Sister Lydia, what did you say? Unmute yourself and tell us. No, I was just kidding. I said all the languages. <laughs> yes, he, he understands all the languages, but he spoke because he was in a certain context and the language of the context in which he lived was the language he must have spoken. Um, and that's Aram Aramaic, or some will say Aramic. Um, I, I can't pronounce Aramaic. that. Aramaic, good. So Jesus spoke Aramaic, but the New Testament was not, I mean, there, were, there are some words that were preserved in the Aramaic, Talita Kumi, um, Haba, Father, and things like that. Those are words that are literally Aramaic, uh, but the New Testament was majorly written in Greek. And so even in saying that we are reading the words of Jesus, it's like something happened within some people that were speaking Yoruba language, which is my mother tongue, and I choose to record the account in English, there is already the possibility of nuancing the original event, isn't it? I mean, I could choose to use idioms that would make sense in English, which if you then put that back into a Yoruba context in which it originally happened, it might not make sense. If I say that someone is, I don't know. I mean, I'm, there are just so very many idioms like that that doesn't translate either way. If the Yoruba, for instance, refers to, <laughs> that's too that's too complex. That's that's way too complex. That that's yam pepper skata skata. <laughs> don't make me cough. <laughs> the the one that readily came to mind, for instance, is when. When the Yoruba refers to someone as Eshenuwe, which is a bad example, but Eshenuwe literally means 
the horse in a book, if I translate that statement literally, the horse in a book, that doesn't make any sense in the English context other than a horse that is in a book, which definitely must be a picture. But Eshinuwe, I mean, Eshinuwe in, in, in the Yoruba context would mean an impotent person, someone that can perform in that sense. I mean, just imagine the world of difference in that idiomatic expression. So the, the, I'm basically making us see that even in recording the words of Jesus and, and all of that in the Greek language, it's already posing its own challenges. And, and I want us to have that somewhere at the back of our mind. Now, in the early centuries of the life of the church, and the church began after Jesus kind of instituted it, um, especially on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was sent, uh, Bible scholars will believe that's the beginning, that's the genesis of the church. And from that period, in that context, books were very expensive. Not just very expensive, the process of making paper, the process of producing the ink, the process of actually writing, these are things that take skills that not many people can do and do properly. And so it's, that has its own challenges in the sense that we, I mean, today you can photocopy a piece of paper and retain its verbatim and distribute whatever as PDF on WhatsApp and you send it to a broadcast, everybody has gotten it. We didn't have that back in those days. Of course, when we were saying that there is scripture in the first century referring to the Old Testament, that was scrolls. And uh, you know what a scroll, I think I have a picture somewhere here of what, yeah, that's, that's what a scroll looks like. Uh, and that's never a comfortable way <laughs> to read, um, at least not in the same way and experience in which we can read today. Um, imagine having a scroll like that and you're looking for Revelation chapter <laughs> three verse. Okay, uh, let's limit it to the Old Testament. You're looking for Malachi chapter three verse 12 or nine to 12, bring your tithes today. I don't know why that came to mind, but yeah, just imagine that. You have to roll and unroll and it takes, as it's looking simple as the man is holding it in the picture, but it takes a lot of careful skill to be able to, you know, maneuver it and get it to where you want it to be. Uh, and that's even to read it. To write on this material is equally as tedious. So there's nothing simple about this process. Uh, so before modern books, we had scrolls, which were, like I said, cumbersome. And then they had something called papyrus, which was also coming into place around that first century periods. By the second century, then came what is called the codex, which began to look like what we could call books today. This is an example of a modern day model of what the codex would have looked like. Um, and I mean, this is beginning to look like a book. Many of the books that were written in the first 500 years of Christian life, I'm saying the church fathers, people that were respected in church history, that we are still quoting them today, Augustine, Athanasius, uh, Origen, and many of these other people would have written on something like this. In fact, if you had a book writer, if you had an author, your book would have been written on something like this. For you to publish a book back then would be that you have people that are willing to copy by hand what you have written on something like this and then have multiple copies of that. It's a tedious, extremely tedious process to work with. 
By the end of the 300s, which is literally the end of the fourth century, the Greek language, the reason why the New Testament was written in Greek was because again, like I said, that was the Greco-Roman world. That was the time when the Romans were the world power basically. And so in a colonial system, just the same way the British colonized many countries in Africa and those countries become Anglophone countries in the sense that English is the lingua franca. France colonized some countries that became Francophone countries in that French is the lingua franca. In the same way, all the territories that were colonized by Rome became Greco-Roman world. And so they speak Greek. That's the language of Rome. That's the language that was in power. But of course, we know that that empire did not last forever. And so as history was unveiling, the Greek language was becoming a language that was spoken by lesser and lesser people. And Latin was becoming the common language. And so in the fourth century, in 384 specifically, a man by the name Jerome was commissioned by the, I believe by the Pope at the time to spearhead a translation of the Bible into the language that has now become the main language of the people, Latin. And so he did a Latin translation of the Bible that is called the Latin Vulgate. Some of you, if you have Bibles that have study notes or footnotes or commentaries and things like that, or you could read some of those footnotes and see things about Latin Vulgate, Masoretic texts, and all sorts of languages that are just wondering, what, what's this got to do with me? This is hopefully going to make a bit of sense of that for you. Um, so yeah, that was, that was the Bible that then became the main Bible. And this was coming from the Old Testament, we said, was originally written in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek, but also before Jesus was born, about one or two centuries BC, there was a Greek version of the Old Testament, and that was called the Septuagint. I know I'm now using many words. We have talked about the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate is the Latin version of the Bible that was translated from the Greek New Testament for the New Testament part. But for the Old Testament part, rather than translating from the Hebrew, Jerome and his team translated from the Greek version of the Old Testament. Of course, when you begin to translate from secondary sources, it has its own challenges. Um, I've done an experiment once with my teenagers when I was um, leading this teenage group back in Nigeria before I came to the UK. Um, and one time I said something into the ears of one person and there were like 10 of them on a line and I whispered it into his ears and said he should whisper to the next person and the next person should whisper all like that till the 10th person. I can't exactly remember, I have this written down somewhere, but I can't exactly remember what I said to the first person, but by the time it got out from the ears of the last person on the queue, it has become something totally different <laughs> from what I said initially. Some things have been added <laughs> and some things have been redirected because of how they head themselves differently. Of course, that's not a standard experiment, but that's just to prove that indeed, especially when you're crossing language barriers, there would be, there could be misinterpretations and things like that. So Jerome's first attempt at making a Latin Bible was to translate the Old Testament from the Greek version rather than the Hebrew. But of course, a few years later, 
He then went and produced another Old Testament version from the Hebrew after he had, you know, taken a lot of years to actually learn the Hebrew language and things like that. And so having that version, it then became more or less the Bible of the church. Uh, the Pope sanctioned this. And so this is the Bible and it was called the Vulgate. Vulgate coming from the word vulgar. And vulgar not meaning what you think it means now. When we say someone is saying vulgar words, we say the person is using swear words. But vulgar simply means common, the common language of the people. You could say um, your local dialect or your mother tongue, that kind of stuff. Now, the prevalence of the Latin language made this the most widely used translation of the Bible up until the time of the Reformation. That's the language that services are conducted in. That's the language that if there was news, if there were to be Facebook, that would be the primary language of Facebook users and things like that. This, this was the language of the academy. This was the language of, of worship and things like that. Um, but of course, again, as the centuries rolled on, it so happened that fewer and fewer people spoke Latin and people, many other languages were becoming the central languages in different communities. And so with lesser and lesser people speaking Latin and without Bibles being in those new or predominant trans languages in different contexts, then there is that challenge that lesser and lesser people were reading the Bible. In fact, it got to a point whereby it's almost like for you to attend church, if you can't understand Latin, you can't understand whatever is going on. You're just supposed to participate like that. Um, a few years back, I was in Belgium, but this time we attended service in, a, in an Eastern Orthodox church. So remember I said later there will be a major split in the Catholic church and the Eastern people would continue to do their things. And this particular church we attended in Belgium, they still have that in place. They, are, they spoke Latin all through the service. There were manuscripts for us to follow and they did translate into the manuscript into English for those of us that were visiting because the church that I think they are open to lots of visitors. But the service, the entire service was conducted into, in the Latin language. And when it was time for communion, the only way I knew it was time for communion is because people were filing out. And even the taste of the communion, I've never tasted that kind of communion all my life. The beer was proper, proper alcoholic. <laughs> and, and the taste was ever so sharp. But in any case, I had a wonderful time just, you know, being in that ambience and worshiping together with those people. All that to say, if that is where I get to go and worship every Sunday, and I don't understand Latin, I'm done for in my spiritual life in that sense, because I really don't know what's going on. And that was the challenge, really. By the time we are moving on and on down the history to the seventh century, we began to see different people make attempts at or translating, even if it's just a small part of the scriptures into whatever language. For the sake of this, few minutes together and we have few minutes left. <laughs> For the sake of these few minutes together, of course, you know, we are talking majorly about the English Bible that we all use. Um, and so I've focused more on that. In 680, around 680, when you see C dot a particular figure, that C means psyche in, I think it's Latin, but it simply means about or around. So around 680, there is, um, 
a man by the name of Cadmon that translated some of the Psalms into Old English. Again, between that and 990, there are many other people that did things like that. But in 990, there was um, a, a group of people that worked on what is called the Wessex Gospel. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in Old English. By this time or the next century in France, uh, there's a man by the name of Peter Lyons that also did a French translation of the New Testament. You would notice that most people that are doing translation always start with New Testament. If you, I mean, it's shorter, it's easier before you then double into, into the old. But something happened in the 13th century, specifically in 1229, there was a council of that was called in Toulouse. And, all through church history, there have been different councils debating different things. For instance, what books should be included in the Bible? That, had, that was an ongoing debate in various councils, even up until around the 16th, 17th century. Um, but there was a council in Toulouse whereby it was made official that the Catholic Church is banning vernacular language, the Bible being translated into vernacular languages. And there was a reason for this. There was a group of people called the Abugensis at the time that was an obvious heretical group teaching all sorts of heresies. But those heresies are coming because they've translated the Bible from Latin into the language of the people in their context. But they were teaching things that were clearly contrary to the scriptures. But of course, this ban will then go on to have a lot of ripple effects for very many other people that meant well for their endeavors to try to translate, which would bring us to the work of John Wycliffe before we get to Tyndale. John Wycliffe in the 14th century wrote a book titled The Truth of the Holy Scripture. And basically one of the major arguments he was making in that book is that for you to be a Christian indeed, you need to have access to God's word. It's not just the priests and the professors and the colleges that should be able to understand. Those are the people that could understand Latin at that time. You have to be a priest or you have to be a, in the academia to be able to effectively understand and communicate in Latin. Every other person is speaking different languages and yet there are no Bibles in those languages. So he wrote this book to make that argument that the Bible on the one hand must be the ultimate authority for the church, not even the Pope, not the bishops, not the councils, the Bible. And on the other hand, of course, if the Bible will be the ultimate authority, then we need everyone to understand it. And so it does, it's not a surprise that a few years later, he decided together with his colleagues and students to work on what is now called the Wycliffe Bible, a complete translation from that Latin Vulgate into the English as English was being spoken at the time. Now, this was an entirely uncopied process hand copied and hand produced. Just imagine, and we said all they had was all these codexes and stuff. There were yet, there was no printing press up until the 17th century, 15th, 15th, 16th century, there was no printing press. And so he did all of this work, but of course, because of that thing that was said in the Council of Toulouse few decades before, he was treated as an heretic would be treated. And so he was forced out of his post at Oxford University where he was teaching. He died a couple of years after that while he was still working, I believe on the old, no, no, he already translated the old Bible. It was Wendell that died while he was still working on the Old Testament. Um, and he was 
not only treated as an heretic around that time, even years after he had died, his bones was brought up and burnt the way they would normally treat a heretic in that prevalent era um, by the Catholic um, Church. And every time I'm saying the Roman Catholic Church here, don't think of the Roman Catholic Church that you know today. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church itself has evolved through a lot of evolutions and things. And um, uh, But there was once upon a time that things were that bad, quote and unquote, um, in that sense. But after Wycliffe died, there was a British poet that wrote a poem, and this was part of the words in that poem that became a prophecy. As thou these hashes, little brook, will bear into the Avon, the Avon is one of their rivers, and Avon to the tide of Savan, Savan to the narrow seas, from the narrow seas into the main ocean. This deed, this action of burning this man's hashes, accursed an emblem would yield to friends and enemies how the bold teacher's doctrine, sanctified by truth, shall spread throughout the world this past. Basically, it's literally saying the ashes that you have burned, which is being emptied into this river, from which he believes it will get into the sea, get into the ocean, and get into anywhere on earth. It will so be that by God's grace, what you have done will become a symbol, a prophetic symbol of what God will do with his word. That one way or the other, God will get his word across the world to all the people that need to reach it. Which brings us to around the time of Tyndale and the Reformation. Few things happened around this period that changed, changed the game totally. The first thing is the printing press was invented. This was in the 15th century. The second thing is there was now uh, someone worked on the Greek version of the New Testament. So once again, we have access to the Greek as opposed to the Latin Vulgate that has become the Bible that everyone was working with at the time. And so people could once again see what, at least what Apostle Paul wrote, what John wrote, what Peter wrote in the words that they wrote it. That became possible again. And when Martin Luther, for instance, was engaging with some of those texts, it changed the game for him as well. He also would go on to write the Bible in the German language for Germans, both starting with the New Testament and then eventually the Old Testament. Which brings us to the third phase, the history of the Bible from Tyndale to the King James Version. So Tyndale, this guy, and if you've ever bothered to read the preface to your KJV Bible, you would see something mentioned about him. He dedicated himself to producing a Bible in the English language that was translated this time, not from the Latin, but from the original, as we will call it, Hebrew language of the Old Testament and Greek language of the New Testament. And so he had to work with manuscripts that were written in those languages to bring about an English translation that was as close to, quote unquote, the original as possible. Luther, by this time, had done the same for the Germans, bringing about a German New Testament and then eventually a complete Bible with the Old Testament in 1534. And in 1526, that was when Tyndale's New Testament rolled the printing press. Happy days. By a few years later, especially in the 1530s, many more versions and editions of his New Testament was published. And then it was about that time that you could say the Church of England was officially established. The Church of England and the 
for those of us in the UK, this won't be strange, but for those joining from elsewhere, you might not know. The queen or the king in England is the head of the kingdom as well as the head of the church. Of course, we know that Jesus is the head of the church, but the number one person in the Christian circus or Christian community in the United Kingdom at any given time is whoever is, whoever is the king or the queen. And so this became a thing from about that same time. And the king um, on the throne at the time was King James the first. Um, again, in the 1530s, that was when we had the Coverdale Bible. The Coverdale Bible is more or less Tyndale's New Testament and then his Old Testament, which was half done at, at the time he died, his Old Testament being completed together with the Matthew Bible, which was also done by one of Tyndale's friends. And then King Henry VIII also published a Bible in 1539 called the Great Bible, um, which again was more or less a plagiarism of Tyndale's work. And the irony is that it was this same king that actually sentenced um, Tyndale, I mean, declared him an heretic, sentenced him to prison. And I think it was from there that he actually ended his life. This brings us down to later in that century, a Bible that would then go on to be the major English Bible, which people like William Shakespeare would have used in his days, and that's the Geneva Bible. Of course, there are so many stories that I'm jumping here, but many things were happening around the Reformation. Europe wasn't, I mean, there were lots of wars that were going on here and there in the name of Christ and in the name of God, in the name of Reformation or whatever, or anti-Reformation as the case may be. And lots of people were fleeing away from England to, um, to Geneva, Switzerland. And in Geneva, one of the key figures of the Reformation there is a man by the name John Calvin, which you might have heard. And John Calvin and his cohorts also worked on a particular English Bible called the Geneva Bible. Uh, this Bible is the first Bible where verses were introduced. This Bible is the first Bible that had maps and charts and commentaries and study guides and all those kind of things. This was like the deal back then. Um, and it went on to become a preeminent uh, version of the English Bible for many years, up until King James. And King James decided, okay, enough of this particular Bible that is taking over, more so, the, the Geneva Bible was being used by Puritans and King James hated the Puritans. So he wanted a version of the Bible for himself. And so set up a committee to work on that. And that's what led to the production of the King James, the almighty King James version that many of us know and perhaps love in 1611. There's a documentary and I believe now it's free on YouTube um, titled When God Spoke English. You can check it out. It's the story of how the KJV was made when God spoke English. The first time I saw that over 10 years ago now, it literally blew my mind because <laughs> it totally changed my idea of the King James Version. It gave a very objective, the, the, the lead narrator wasn't even a professed Christian at the time. So he was very objective in his own research and that led to the documentary and I think eventually wrote a book by the same title. Of course, then this would become over the years, the Supreme English Bible. There have been lots of glitches in the first few pre uh, versions or editions. There was one particular edition of the KJV that was called the He Bible, where somewhere in the book of Ruth, they were referring to Ruth with he pronoun instead of she. And that would be something interesting for 
um, the homosexual community today. <laughs> There's also the Wicked Bible as one of the editions of KJV back then, whereby Exodus 20:14 says, thou shalt commit adultery. There was a typographical error and they omitted the notes. It's not that that was what they said, they, it was an omission. Uh, of course, part of what I can remember, albeit vaguely from that documentary is that part of the people that actually worked on this translation, they weren't exactly people of Stalin character. And some of them could get drunk <laughs> occasionally. And so perhaps it was, I don't know, anyways. So let me not read into the history, what I wasn't, what I am not sure about. But till today, it's clear that even the work that Tyndale did, 90% of that is still retained almost word for word in the KJV. And yet Tyndale was born at the stake, I think, uh, was killed as a martyr, or as, of course, we Christians refer to him as a martyr, but he was literally um, killed as a heretic back in his days. And so think of all of that history when you think of the Bible that you're holding. And so the 16th century was a real watershed moment for the Bible, especially because of the Reformation. Martin Luther in Germany, um, John Calvin in, in Switzerland, and very many other characters of the Reformation were all preaching, amongst other things, five pillars, as they will go on to call it, of the Reformation. And one of those pillars is sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. They, they talked about faith alone, in Christ alone, based on scripture alone, um, for the glory of God alone, um, and there is one other, we're saved by grace alone, yeah, so saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, and all of those things start with a sola in the Latin language, so sola fidei, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, sola scriptura, scripture alone, and on and on like that. But that, the issue of the scripture was central to the Reformation. That was when many churches then began to have preaching pulpits. Churches didn't have that for a long time. Instead of the pulpit, what you have in churches was an altar, like proper altar where you burn incense and things like that. There was no pulpits because there is really nothing about gathering around God's word. But after the Reformation, I mean, you could go to a church service today and take for granted the fact that there is a section reserved where someone stands before the congregation to speak. That never used to be the case for very many hundreds of years in church history. People just come together, gather for mass, have the leader speak blessing over the people and you're gone. And of course, part of also what was going on then was because, which was part of what the reformers were fighting against was that the Pope had risen to a point where we call it papal authority, where the Pope's word is the final word. The Pope is the supreme authority over the church. But the reformers were saying, no, if the Pope is clearly violating what the scripture has said, then it can't be the final authority. We go back to scripture and scripture and scripture alone. So that's, that's the story around, around that. And that brings us to the history after the KJV, which is the era we are living in now, the era of multiple translations. And I can't begin to go into the stories of all those different translations, but this chat is very, very vague. What I just wanted to, I mean, it's not clear, but what I wanted to point out there is 1885. <laughs> that one is important to me. There's a man's name there by Bishop Samuel Ajayi Crowder. That was the first African mother tongue translator of the Bible. 
who completed the Bible in my mother tongue. Oh, and that made it into the records. Oh, <laughs> in 1885. Um, but this chat right here, which is where I think I would wrap up, um, sums up where we are today. Um, you see all manner of English translations of the Bible, and you'll be wondering, um, what's the deal? Why do we keep having all these new and new and new translations? The, the deal is that every translation has a translation philosophy. Once upon a time, it's, it was enough to have the KJV, or the Geneva Bible. But now, languages change over the years. Um, and I mentioned that on this particular slide. Not that the English language changed to Spanish. It's still English, but the way words are being used change over time. If you are reading Shakespeare and you are not exactly well-versed in the Shakespearean world, some of the things would not make sense in our current context. And then the other side to that is that biblical scholarship, the field of people trying to learn more about the Greek language, the Hebrew language, what it was like back in the days of Jesus, that's a field that continues to expand and new discoveries are being made. And as those new discoveries are being made, it's causing people to look back to some of these translations to say, perhaps we should have said this better in this place. Perhaps this could have been said in this way or that way based on this new finding. In fact, new manuscripts are still being discovered some of those being the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered, I think, in the 1940s or something like that, not too many decades ago. And that, on the one hand, justified or confirmed the validity of what we have today, because those manuscripts, I think, they dated back to some years before Christ. And yet it's preserved in very crystal clear similarity to what we have already as the Old Testament in that sense. So those are different things that keep on happening that makes newer and newer translations to continue to emerge. But broadly, all translations are in three groups or translation philosophies. Some people are working on a word-for-word -word basis. In other words, what they are trying to do is they want what you're reading in English to sound almost word-for-word -word what it was in Hebrew or what it was in Greek depending on the manuscripts that they are working with. On the latter hand is the paraphrase. In other words, those ones have read it and decide to retell it. A good example of that is the message translation. So there is freedom to say it whichever way, based on supposedly a good understanding of what has been said in Hebrew or in Greek. Let me now say to you in English, in the language you understand in the 21st century. That's a paraphrase. But in between those two are translations that they are not exactly working on a word-for-word -word basis. And at the same time, they don't take too much liberty to rephrase everything and state it afresh. But what they are doing is thought for thought, asking, let's look at this statement or let's look at this paragraph. What's the main thought? How can we express that and still preserve as much as possible the formation of the statements in the original and present that in English language. And that's where you find translations like the HCSB, NRSV, NAB, NIV, NCV, and things like that. But when you begin to move from the NLT towards the NIRV, which is the New International Reader's Version, to CEV, Contemporary English, to the Living Bible, to the Message Translation, 
And some will add the passion transmission to that. Um, you begin to get into paraphrases. Of course, the passion translation one is a dicey one. Uh, for some of you that use um, biblegateway.com, you might have noticed that the passion translation has been taken off the Bible Gateway website. And the reason was not given. They just took it off without any concrete explanation for that. But some people believe that part of the reason why they did that is because the lead translator for the Passion Translation, Brian Simons, calls it a translation, the Passion Translation, when obviously in very many verses, he adds many words or rephrases many things. And so they felt it would have been better for him to say it's a paraphrase rather than a translation. Uh, but Brian Simon believes it's a translation that is conveying the passion of what was said in the original manuscripts. And so here he stands by the fact that it's a translation rather than a paraphrase. But I won't get into that debate with us. And on that note, I end my, this is just another slide saying more or less the same thing. I end my ramblings and teachings. <laughs> I hope we've made a little bit of sense. I can see there are already a couple of questions in the chat thread that we'll get to. And I'll just crave our indulgence. It's already 8.30. I'll crave our indulgence to take five to 10 minutes just so that we can have these interactions. I don't want to have said all these things without our questions being at least heard. Of course, like I've said at the beginning, we can't possibly answer all the questions that can come from this. But one of the things I'm hoping we'll start thinking about is what all this information now mean to me in terms of how to appreciate what I have on my phone, on my tablet, or beside my bed, as the case may be. And that's one thing I would be happy to hear some thoughts about. Any feedback before I go to the question on the chat thread? And I would share the slides with anyone that would want it. I can pass it around on the broadcast list and on the um, Emas Youth Group as well. So if you don't get it from any of those, reach out to me personally, and I'll be happy to send the slides to you as PDF. Any, any feedback, any thoughts before I take the questions on the chat? Good evening, sir. Good evening, Oga Kingsley. Good to see you or hear you. Thank you very much for the research and the work that you put through. Deliveries for us, okay. and for me, one of the things that I, uh, I, I'm going out of for this mm -hmm. is the sacrifice and the level of commitment that people have put through mm. for what we right now. That okay. some of us don't even read in the morning. Mm. The sacrifice that people have put through when we get to heaven, and people are saying, "This is what they went through. These are the opposition they went through." What would I? open up to say yeah. it's true. You know? so it's it's is that that's 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 it for me like it's it's a thing of reflection while you were speaking I was just reflecting and uh, you know checking some of the sacrifice and the oppositions and some of the, some of them did not even know what they were doing but they were just asking the spirits of God. Mm. And so just that was it for me like um, no, again, sometimes if you know the history of something, it helps you to preserve that stuff, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Like sometimes uh, uh, our parents, my dad will always tell us about the name, where you remember where you came from, remember your name, remember your name. Mm -hmm. So if you remember where you come from, remember your name, you're not going to go into a lot of atrocities because you want to defend that name and all that. 
So you understand where if you see the history and what people have gone through, yeah. uh, some people gave out their life jackets to save the Bible mm-hmm. or the transcripts. And then when you talk about people writing the Bible with their hands, literally, man, it's, it's, it's <laughs> even as in, I don't know, even typing and chatting is a problem for me. You know, imagine now someone. And this was what, when, when Moses went to, uh, to, for his first 40 days and night uh, mm-hmm. meeting with the Lord, the Lord wrote it down for him, the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. And when he, he broke it out, and when he came to that time, God said, no, you have to write it and see the stress yes, yes, of, mm-hmm. of writing this thing. And after he wrote it, he couldn't break it. But if I remember, I think they did they say something similar, but he didn't have to break it because he knew the stress of writing it and all that. So, if we understand some of these things, it helps us to appreciate what we have now. It helps us to appreciate um, uh, uh, what we have now. And also, thank God that we are living in this age. You know, that's something I was, I was like, thank God I'm living. The, the challenges of this age is more, but thank God we, we have the, the, the resources, mm. we have equipment mm. to put. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you um, very much. Thank you very much. For the moral support. Indeed, we should say that because <laughs> yes, it's a day to prepare the slide, and she kept asking, "When will you be done with this slide?" Anyways, I, I believe Kingsley, you've spoken what's in the mind of very many people, and um, that because on the one, and that's also one of the major things I'm hoping that this will do for us: make the value of the scriptures come alive afresh in a way that would help us remember there was a Jerome that worked. There was a Tyndale that was ridiculed, as it were. And there are many other unnamed people that had been involved. Very many of them went down in history as heretics, just because they are trying to make God's word accessible to one Joseph Kolawaleola many centuries down the line. I shouldn't take that for granted, and neither should any of us. Um, the questions on the chat thread. Please, Pastor, how were the scrolls discovered according to history? Like I, I mean, a, a very recent one would be the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that was discovered in a cave, um, I think somewhere around Egypt. I'm not exactly sure of the location. But just the same way, um, I mean, part of Bible scholarship today is archaeology. Or part of the way science is corroborating the things we see in the scripture is in the field of archaeology. And as people are digging different old sites, trying to find different things, dinosaur bones or whatever, they are also discovering many other things that is sparking. And these Dead Sea Scrolls were neatly preserved in that cave with lots of copies. And part of the reasons why we can trust, especially the New Testament, for instance, that um, that we have today is because, I mean, like I said, by the time of Jesus, the Old Testament was more or less already standardized. But the New Testament, we have so very many copies that had been handwritten, either in part or in whole, that we can begin to then compare, oh, okay, this is Anu's version or Anu's copy. This is Kola's copy. This is Dylan's copy. This is Henry's copy. And by the time we began to look at those copies together, we see that it's consistently the same. The few things that are different will probably be spelling errors here and there or omissions here and there, none of which in any way 
um, infringes on the core doctrines or teachings of the Bible. And so with that, I mean, the Bible just outclasses very many ancient books. There are people today that are professors based on the work of Omar or the work of all these philosophers, Aristotle or whatever, that had lived many years ago. And how many copies of their manuscripts, so to speak, are still existing? Very, very few, many of which will date back to around the 9th century, the 10th century. But today we still have many copies, thousands actually, copies of manuscripts of the New Testament in the Greek language, some of which dates as far back as the second century, which is not too far from when it was originally written. And so those are very many things that chipping into why we can trust what we have today. Second question, why or how come Paul was able to write more books than the rest of the disciples? Paul was learned. Peter was a fisherman. Jesus's brother, Jesus himself was a carpenter. If Jesus was a carpenter, we don't exactly know what James was doing, but he's probably also along that line. But Paul was schooled by the best. He, took, he learned under the feet of Gamaliel, who again was a reputable Pharisee. To be a Pharisee is more or less to be a barista, a lawyer. It's as high a, a qualification as you could have back in the days. And so for Paul, writing was, it's it more or less came naturally. And this is, again, one of those things that happen when God takes over your life. He uses all the skills and giftings he has given you to be a blessing to the body of Christ. And that's, that's the story of Paul. And again, you would notice the content of what he has written. It's in very many ways, more loaded, more deep. Um, and God intentionally indeed called him to, to make a mark, as it were, um, especially in bringing, crossing this barrier of this story that has always been the story of the Jews, the story of the Jews, to become the story of the world. God needed someone that is that he has gifted with the unique skills to make that possible. And so he calls Paul and makes him an apostle to the Gentiles, and he did that ever so brilliantly. So I would argue that that's why he could write more books. He had more training that had prepared him to be able to do that. And the nature of his ministry, being in prison here and there, necessitated that he writes letters to the people and the churches that he had planted. Secondly, is there any benefit to reading the apocryphal books, especially since it is added to some good news translation? Brilliant question, um, which, of course, there is not so much time to get into all of the details, but the simple answer is yes. The same way I will read a book written by Max Lucado, the same way I will read a book, I can read any book from any author, knowing or with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So why not if not? Um, I can read those books um, and, and read them with the guidance of the Holy Spirit to discern if there's anything that I need to know or differentiate or whatever, as the case may be. And the third question, knowing that some translations deliberately omit some verses, e.g. Acts 8.37, are there translations that we should be aware of? Again, this is a very interesting question. I would have loved to get contributions on all of these questions, but we are really at press for time. Maybe we'll still, I mean, after this contribution, if you really want to say something on any of those questions, please, please, please feel free to say it. But on this third question, um, it brings us back to that issue of manuscripts that translators are working with. 
The reason why you would find omissions in some Bible verses is not because the translators want to omit verses. It's because, and this is almost logical, say you are working on a translation of the New Testament. You have before you 20 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, which are dated differently. One of them, for instance, say was dated to the second century. Another one was dated to the fourth century. Another one was probably copied um, around 900 and something AD. And you notice that in some verses, you get to the 980 version, you find it. You look at the 300 and something AD version, you find it. But you look at the one you had from 200 and something AD and it's not there. It might make you want to, there is the possibility, there are two possibilities. One possibility is that people that were writing later added it for whatever reason. Or the particular copy that you have from your second or third century, the person that was writing mistakenly omitted that part. These are things that are absolutely possible. And so depending on the primary, most translators will have a primary manuscript that they are working with. And based on whatever preferences that they would have stated in their preface, that's why I always advise, read the preface of the Bible that you are working with. It's always ever so helpful. It clarifies many of these questions ever so easily. But then also take note of the footnotes. Most Bibles today have footnotes. They have at least a little bit of explanation about why something is not where you expect to find it. And so many versions that I know today that would do that, like the NIV, maybe the ESV and some other versions like that, there'll be a footnote to say, this verse was omitted, but you will find it in this kind of manuscript or that kind of manuscript. Maybe you find it in the Latin Vulgate or you might find it in the Masoretic text or whatever, they would cite the other versions that have it and put there what it should be, even though they have not included it in the main. And they are saying the reason why it has not been included is because they have reasons to doubt that it might be in the original manuscript. And again, if you look very many of the times, those verses are not significant in terms of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. That would be the way I would respond to that. Any final thoughts, questions, contributions to any of these questions that anybody wants to add? I'm sorry that we had to rush through at the very end. Sister, I know you are looking up and down at you have a question. <laughs> um, can I ask a question? Yeah, go on, Henry. Okay. Uh, no, like, because it's like the making Bible into verses was a recent thing. I mean, compared to like um, when the Bible was first translated from yes. main languages. And uh, so when yeah. they're comparing manuscripts, um, with regards to your the third yes. question from the last yeah. year, so how do they like link that back? So like coming from a manuscript that wasn't in verses to the one that is now in verse another. Yeah, like most of the manuscripts that we're talking about, which is why this is this is not a simple process. Most of the manuscripts we're talking about don't have chapters and verses. Chapters came. No, they have chapters because I think chapters came as early into the centuries as possible. But verses did not come until um, until the time of the Geneva Bible, just a few years before someone laid it out. And so when Geneva Bible was out in 1560, it came out with verses in them. Um, so, But most of the translations that people work with, you don't want to be working on a Bible translation from a manuscript that is from the 16th century. You need to go as far back to the first 1,000 years of the church. 
And in those period, you won't find verses. But part of what technology has also afforded us today is that all these manuscripts that we're talking about, I know there is a particular institute that is devoted into preserving them um, in digital forms. And that's why you could have today, even on biblehub.com, or if you have ESOD on your system, you could see Coverdale Bible, you could see the Latin Vulgate, you could see the Hebrew Old Testament, you could see the Greek New Testament and have access to all of these things with verses because technology has now afforded us the possibility to do that. And so once they are able to do all of that digitally, the work of comparing verses becomes relatively very easy. Easy now, but there is a whole lot of work that is involved in getting it to that point where that becomes digitally possible with the help of technology. Hope and they think that some of the books were omitted or chapters. Not chapters. Like, All these questions that we're talking about would be few words here and there. I think the longest would be in some manuscripts, some old ancient manuscripts, you would find um, the book of Mark ending the way it ends in many of our Bibles. But in some other more recent manuscripts, you'll find a a longer ending. So there is a longer ending to Mark and a shorter ending to Mark in different manuscripts. Another one would be the story of the woman that was caught in the book in the act of adultery, John chapter eight. You won't find that in all ancient manuscripts. So, and I think it's also a long chunk from that story onwards that was omitted in some of those manuscripts. But if the story of the woman that was caught in the adultery was not in the Bible, would that have changed the revelation of Jesus that we have? It doesn't. Uh, so that's those is all those kind of things, and those would be the longest. All the other ones would be a matter of a word was used here, a statement was added here. For instance, when Jesus said, "This kind cannot go out except by prayer," and then some versions had and fasting, and some many modern translations believe that and fasting was not part of what was in the original manuscript. But there are some manuscripts, also hold, but not as old as many other ones that don't have it. So if these many manuscripts coming from the second century don't have it, and we are now beginning to see it in manuscripts from the ninth century, we have every reason to doubt whether it was there originally. Perhaps it was added later. In fact, the KJV is responsible for some of the additions that has now become common in many translations as was later found out um, because again, as much as the KJV is, of course, God's word, brilliant work of literature, um, there were also some other agenda that was underlining. That's why I referenced the fact that you could go and check out when God spoke English. There was a political agenda as well going on. This is a project that was peer-headed by a king. And so there are some other things that you find in the KJV that there are questions about, was that exactly there? Why did you have this injunction, uh, conjunction and take away that conjunction and things like that? So yeah, all those different things were, were at play in that sense. Sister Inka, your hand is up and that might be the last question. I'm so sorry. I, I, um, so thank you so much. Um, I just wanted to add a little to the contribution. You already said it, uh, Pastor. Um, for me, um, I think maybe, I don't know, maybe it's also safe to say that when reading, um, scriptures it's it's good to just have the original which is the kjv um and i'm just making in reference to the some verses that were being omitted and things like that i used to i used to not like kjv because of the the destruction of the english 
it seems so difficult, but later I have come to appreciate KJV simply because, you know, uh, one of the reasons because of those, um, for the fact that it has, it contains everything that it needs to contain, mm -hmm. you know, like that, that's verse at chapter 837 that, that is being omitted in some of the more recent translations. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, on the issue of Paul, in addition to the fact that he was more educated <clears throat> than the other, uh, amongst the other disciples, because we also had Luke. Luke, technically, yeah, he, he, he was a doctor. Mm -hmm. He's not like listed among the 12 disciples, but he was also a follower of Jesus, but he was also educated. But I just came to realize that most of Paul's writings were letters, were letters to the churches. And what brought about him writing a letter or letters was because he was in prison. Mm -hmm. you know, so okay. he had, number one, he had the time yeah. and he was communicating to the churches. Yeah. So it was more like bringing out a good out of a bad situation, even though he was in prison. We now have what we have as his writing. Absolutely. But the fact that he was in prison and he had the time to write and then he needed to communicate with the churches, the mm. places where he had once been and he needed to keep in touch with them. And today we have that as part of the New Testament. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ma. And uh, just to add to that, uh, the, part of the reason again is because he's not writing to these churches just because he wants to write to churches. Many of these churches, with the exception of Romans and Colossae, he planted them. How many churches did Peter plant? How many churches did James plant? How many churches did Jude plant? And things like that. Uh, and his letter to Philemon was a letter to someone that he knew personally as a friend and disciple and things like that. Um, but I just also wanted to add that actually, if you bring together everything Luke wrote and everything Paul wrote, what Luke wrote is more. Luke wrote only two books, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. But if you combine the volume of what Luke wrote with all of the letters of Paul that we have attributed to Paul, what Luke wrote is still more. It's just a tidbit of information. Um, I think it's been an interesting evening. I'm sorry that we had to overshoots the time and also to do a bit of rushing towards the end. I want to believe that it's been helpful one way or the other. And if God permits, if God permits, we could spend quite a significant period of time to actually then there are many things that could be unpacked further from what we've talked about, um, about translations, about how to interpret the Bible for ourselves and things like that, that we could take a lengthy journey on, and that's something I'll be excited about. But again, if God permits. Um, in two weeks, we'll be together again, God willing, and we will be fellowshipping together uh, on the subject for that period. I've forgotten what's the focus for June, but we'll get to hear in the communication in the flyer that will come out before then. Thank you so very much. Sorry, Pastor. Do you mind me putting your uh, yeah an uh, good spot <laughs> is if teenagers were to be listening to this like let's say to um, teenagers around teenagers fifteen to twenty or younger kids yeah. what will be your um in the in a statement what will be your encouragement to the Bible beautiful question it will be simply that I mean. 
don't take for granted the fact that you have access to the Bible. Even right now, as we speak, it's not everywhere in the world that people have this free access to the scriptures. And as much as, especially in the English part speaking world, we might think, ah, we have this many access to God's word. There are still hundreds, perhaps thousands of languages spoken in different parts of the world today that still do not have a Bible in their language. And that's why the work of translation is still ongoing everywhere. So don't take for granted that privilege. And what that should mean, ultimately, the Bible is just an avenue for us to know the one that the Bible is about, namely Jesus. All the stories about that, everything that was happening in the Old Testament is pointing to the time that God is going to change the course of history by revealing himself in human form in the person of Jesus to do what Jesus came to do. So let the Bible do that to you. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to read things that you don't understand. And that's fine. You have the rest of your life to figure it out on yourself with the Holy Spirit or in platforms like this or in the community of believers in church. So take it slow and steady and be ready for the ride. It will be an adventure, but be ready for the ride. That would be my few words. Many words. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for asking that. I'm really grateful. Let's pray. And this is the point where I would force Anna to talk because she's been quiet and just looking at us. So can you please lead us in prayer as we bring this to a close? Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for a time to reflect on how much work has gone into your work. Thank you, into your word. Thank you for these sacrifices. Thank you for bringing them forefront to our minds again so that we take what we have as we treasure them we take them as important and we we, we take the words as though they're coming from you god we we pray that this this the information we've received today will draw us closer to you in the name of jesus to to get to know you more to get to bask in your almightiness so that we'd also begin to pass on our awe of you to our children or to the young people around us in the name of Jesus. We pray that we, we, we continue to be ambassadors of your word. We pray that we continue to be the Jesus that people see in the name of Jesus. And we pray that as much as the people that were before us have done so much work. We pray that our lives at this moment will not just be for nothing. We won't just be remembered for our career pursuits or, or the things we do for leisure, but we'll be also remembered for the things we do, for, for the things we did for your kingdom in the name of Jesus. We will be people who are, who are fervent for you, who, who would leave everything for you, who would thirst after you, who would, who would subject even their desires and pleasures for your work and for you for the growth of your kingdom in the name of Jesus. We pray that as we as we we'll meet again the next two weeks, God, we will meet ourselves in good health, much more robust, much more wiser than we are now, much more in-depth in you in the name of Jesus. For in Jesus' sweet name we've prayed. Amen. <laughs>